Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the Ark of the Covenant Law in it and shield the Ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the, good altar of, the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law and put the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tables of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us once again as you have spoken to your people throughout the generations. And we pray that you would take this passage that, again, is one that can feel very foreign and unfamiliar to us. And yet, 
We ask that by the power of your spirit, you would bring us to life through your word, through this passage, through the message that you have for us. Uh, Father, you know our hearts. You know the burdens and the distractions and the worries that everyone who is sitting here has brought here. And we pray that through the power of your spirit working in your word, that you would lift up, up every single one of us to see Christ, to see our need from Him, of him, and to want to give our life to him. We pray that you would do this now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, if you've ever traveled abroad, you know that Coke is one of the most recognized brands across the globe. Uh, you can travel to Europe and you will see Coke for sale. You can travel to Japan and you will see Coke. You can travel to the Middle East and though you cannot read it, the red can with distinct white Arabic script lets you know there's Coke inside that can. You could even travel to a remote village in Kenya, far from where the tourists often go, and you will find a young man selling bottles of Coke in a cooler. Now, I'm a pretty adventurous eater and willing to try most anything, but, but sometimes after enough foreign meals of mystery meat, you just want something that reminds you of home, and a Coke can often do the trick. The can is familiar to you, or in many places is even in a bottle, which has this kind of greater nostalgia, because as you open it up, you think, this is the Coke my parents or my grandparents drank. And so you're holding something that feels like a Coke, it looks like a Coke, it smells like a Coke, but then you taste it, and it's Coke, but it's a little bit different. It's not quite the same. It's this sudden reminder that you're actually far from home. Now, I was looking at it, according to Coke, they say they use the same recipe everywhere, but slight changes in conditions in which the Coke is produced can create these variations in taste. Probably the most different for me was Middle Eastern Coke. And despite that Arabic script all over the can, it looked and felt exactly like a Coke can that you would get here, which resulted in this feeling of familiarity, of something of home, only to be shattered by the experience of that first taste. It was the least tasting Coke I'd ever tried. And it was this instant reminder that even though I had something familiar, I was still far from home. And this is our last sermon in the book of Exodus. We've spent over a year in the book. It's been quite a journey. And as Israel rides off into the proverbial sunset with Yahweh as their guide, we're reminded that for everything that has happened over the past 40 chapters, they are still far from home. They have a long ways to go. Exodus in some way ends where our story begins. Though we have been redeemed like the Israelites, we're not home yet. Though Christ is preparing a place for us to be with him in heaven, every one of us is reminded daily in our suffering, in the wars that uh, go across the globe, in our bodies, that are wrecked by sicknesses and disease, we're not home yet. And that's what I want us to remember in this passage. We're not home yet. And we're going to look at it under two points. First, desert trials. And then two, a holy home. So desert trials. This is the last sermon in the book of Exodus. And so what I want to do in this first point is kind of weave together some of the themes we've seen over the book to remind you of them. And then we'll see how they apply to us and, and, and show up in our passage. So Exodus begins, you probably remember, with the 
Hebrews suffering in Egypt as slaves. Chapter 1 tells us, so the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. The Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. And so here the people are suffering and they cry out to God. Year after year, decade after decade, they're crying out to God. God, do you see us? Do you care about us? Are we going to suffer here forever? And finally, God brings deliverance in the most unexpected of ways. The Nile River, which was a source of power and stability for the Egyptians, was a source of death for so many of those young Hebrew boys. But God turned that place of death into the source of deliverance for one child, Moses, who floated on top of the river right down into Pharaoh's home, where he would grow up under Pharaoh's protection. And that one child would become the deliverer of the Israelites, Moses. And through the ten plagues and that battle between the gods of Egypt versus the god of the Israelites, they get their freedom. They make it out of Egypt. But it's not long after they're out of Egypt, they face a dead end. Remember, they face the Red Sea. And now they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. In front of them is this great sea. And behind them is Pharaoh, who has changed his mind and regretted his decision about letting them go, barreling down behind them with his army. The Israelites are stuck between two of their greatest fears. Pharaoh, who has been oppressing them for years, and the water, which has taken the life of so many of their kids. But again, God is the master of drama, and what does he do? He turns the obstacle into the way. God turns their fear into the path of deliverance, and he makes a way through the Red Sea, and they walk through as kings and queens. And the water, which Pharaoh had used to kill so many of the Israelite babies, now turns on him and drowns him with his army at the bottom of the sea. Now the Israelites are safe. They've made it through. Their fears are all behind them, but they aren't home yet. In fact, they've got a long ways to go. Exodus ends not with them all enjoying Mai Tais on the beach, telling stories of you know, how tough it was, but it ends with them still in the desert, lugging all their belongings from one camp to the next. They haven't built a temple, a permanent structure. They built a tabernacle, a tent that can be packed up and carried from place to place. They would have been mistaken if they thought after getting out of Egypt, their life would be all downhill from there. Though they were redeemed, they would face their greatest temptations and failures after their redemption. And in fact, almost every one of those Israelites who were redeemed from Egypt would die in the desert because they didn't trust God to finish that work that he had started. And that's where we're in a similar place. We've been redeemed by Christ, but we aren't home yet. The, the author of Hebrews in, in chapters 3 and, and 4 compares our journey to these Israelites' journey. Though we've been redeemed, you are like lonely travelers through the desert on your way home. Don't forget that. In Hebrews 3, 5, Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant, his work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house. If we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. That is why the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as Israel did when they rebelled. 
when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. And then he goes on to say, and you are in the same place. You've been redeemed, but today when you hear God's voice speaking to you, don't forget you are still on that journey. Don't forget there awaits a rest for you. And don't forget that God will bring you home. There's a, there's a temptation like the Israelites had. Especially for those of you that have more recently become Christians, you, you, God works powerfully in your life. You feel him drawing himself towards you. These changes occur in your life, but then you think, okay, my life is going to be good now, now that I finally come to know Jesus. But it only takes a month or maybe or a year, or maybe a few months before you realize, I'm a Christian, but life is still really hard. I'm trying to follow God, but these things still aren't getting fixed in my life. It is not all downhill from here. Right? And why does God take his time? Why does God not just redeem us and then say, all right, you're free, go find a home? Well, it's because God is leading his people to a better home, a home flowing with milk and honey, a home without any death or crying or pain. And between our redemption and that home lies a big desert where we are all walking through as journeyers. And there will be all kinds of temptations and trials that'll tempt you to give up, that'll tempt you to find your own way, that'll tempt you to think it's not worth it, I'm just gonna settle down here. And what are those temptations? Well, if you're traveling through the desert, what are the things that are gonna be most pressing for you? The bare necessities, food, shade, water. It's the very same things that the Israelites struggled to trust God with. And it's the same things that you struggle to trust God with. Like, do you trust God to care for your daily needs, your daily provisions, daily grace? Remember how the Israelites, soon after the redemption, they weren't actually thinking, of, they started thinking about Egypt as kind of this, this paradise. Exodus 16.3 they moaned, in Egypt we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted, but now you've brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. Exodus 17.3 But tormented by thirst, the Israelites continued to argue with Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? It's so easy in the middle of trials to want to look back to those good old days and think everything was better back then. And it should be no surprise for us that if we too are on a journey, that some of the greatest temptations will be to trust God with the provisions that we have or don't have in our life right now. Where are you struggling to trust God to provide? Remember how, how God was leading the people, right? We, we see it here at the end of the passage. He tells them where to go. He's the ultimate GPS. He's the ultimate wilderness guide. He's taking them. All right, guys, we're gonna set up camp here for a few days. Cloud goes up, now we're on the move. He is leading them exactly to where they are going to camp every night. But what they discover is sometimes where God leads them to camp is not where they wish they would camp. Has God led you to a place that you would not have chosen in your life? Or what is it, how do you, what do you do when God is leading his people and then the cloud descends as this is it and you look around and you say, are you kidding me? This is where we're going to spend the night? Where are you struggling with anger? Because the places that God has guided you in your life has brought so much hurt into your life and crying and pain. 
And where have you forgotten that redemption that God has given you? Because you're so focused on the lack of water around you. And it consumes your thoughts. And what was God trying to teach his people in those moments? When he said, this is the camp, and they look around and said, this better not be the camp. I am the bread of life. I'm the living water. Seek me first. Trust me more than anything else, even your own senses, and I will take care of the details. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will make sure you get home. But don't the details crowd out God in our life? Don't we get so obsessed and worried about the details of our life more than we seek God in our life? What is the, your heart meditating on? What do you spend your time wrapped up in and thinking about? What anxieties weigh on your mind? Where do you not trust God's direction in your life? Where does it feel like God is actually taking you in the wrong direction of your life? And you've been praying about these things. Maybe you've been praying about them for years or decades, but God doesn't seem to do anything. And you wonder, do you care about me? Do you have my best interests in mind? This thing that you've been longing for for so ever, and it seems to even be getting further away, and you feel like, if I can't have this thing, I don't know if I can be happy in life. But what if, in those things that you so long for, God is showing you that you have a deeper need than that thing that you really want to get fixed right now? You have a deeper need than that thing that is untied in your life right now. That you actually need God. You need to trust him. And it's ironic because on one hand, we, sit, we, we trust God with our salvation, and yet we do not trust God at all with the details in our life. Oh yeah, God saved me, but I'm really worried about this thing that's going to happen at work tomorrow. And God doesn't seem to be making an ounce of difference in how you approach that. But what if those roadblocks, those disappointments, those constant dead ends are there on purpose to get you to stop running around and trying to find some way to get through this thing, looking for pools of stagnant water that you think will quench my thirst. If only I can have this, then I would be okay out here. And God is continually saying no, 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 to get you to stop and to turn around and to discover that source of living water that is so close to you and to drink from him. When you're walking through the desert, when you're on a long journey, you start wondering, why is it taking so long? When are we going to be there? Isn't that the temptation the Israelites had in Sinai, Exodus 32.1? When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come on, make us some gods that can take us there. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us out here from Egypt. You, rarely does temptation in our life kind of offer you this thing that says, forget all that, here's a totally new thing. Temptation often comes offering you what looks like a quicker way to get those things you believe God has promised you. It offers you a way to get home without so much waiting and not as much suffering. If, it offers you a Coke, and though it doesn't taste quite right, it tells you it's good enough, why don't you just stick around and wait a while. Forget about that home. It promises you a way to that destination that doesn't require that you die to yourself before you get there. 
That is what Israel was after in this golden calf. We want a God that will take us to that good place and we don't have to keep waiting here for it. We want a God who will take the most direct way there without so many stops and detours and twists and turns and suffering. We just want to get there. If we had our way, we'd prefer that we could take whatever the equivalent is of a Tesla all the way to heaven. (laughs) Just hop in the seat, punch in the final directions, and let the AI do all the driving, and you just cruise and are comfortable. But what if the reason God is taking his time and taking the long way is because you're not ready yet for that home? Because God is working a change in you that is seven layers deeper than the change that you want in your life. I mean, every one of you, you know you're not perfect. You know there are ways you could do better. And it is often easy for us to come to God and say, God, here's a list of things I want to get fixed. Can you fix them? Can you make these better in my life? But God is actually digging deeper than you want. None of us want to be as good as God promises to make us. Because for him to do that requires a change that is too deep, too painful, and requires you to die to the very things that you are holding most dear and probably have been instrumental to the success you've had in your life. And sometimes to follow God is he will pull those things out of your hands to show you, you need me more. You know, we come looking to God. If you're a new Christian, if you're exploring Christianity, right? We so often come to God because there are these things that are broken in my life. And God, I need some upgrades. Fix these bugs in the software. Make these good things better. God, upgrade the batteries so I can make it to heaven quicker as I speed along that smooth desert highway in my Tesla. I don't want to have to keep stopping for, to get recharged. But in life, God rarely takes the highway. He often takes the way through the obstacle. And why? Well, because how often the obstacles ourselves, our own pride, our ego. Because of the things that we are most proud of in our life is often what is what keeps us most from embracing Jesus. And it's our self-righteousness that needs repenting of. And we need to see that we are the problem as much as everybody else. And when you get a glimpse of the depth of change that God seeks to make in your life, your inclination will be to run the other way and find the quickest way back to the highway where you can get on track again and find a God who isn't as concerned with tweaking the depths of your heart. But you can get that easier God. But a God who does not shatter you is a God who cannot remake you into something bright and beautiful. And that's what you need. And that takes us to our second point, a holy space. In verse 9, it says, Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it will be holy. The tabernacle is God's home on earth, where he's going to dwell with his people, right? But, but it's not the perfect home, because there's still all these layers of fabric and, and rawhide and all things between where God will dwell in the holy space and where the people are outside the camp. And there needs to be this separation because God is holy and the people have this sin on them. It's seen in the instructions to consecrate these temple objects and people to make them holy. We, we see the basic logic of it in verse 16 where it says, anoint Aaron and consecrate him so that he may serve me as priest. 
Now, consecrating something is kind of a summary of all those actions we see in verses 12 and 13. Aaron is washed. He puts on these sacred clothes. He is in, uh, anointed with oil. Consecration, all that stuff, of basically rubbing off all the old stuff, the bad stuff, putting on new clean stuff, allows Aaron to serve as a priest in the tabernacle. To consecrate something means to make it holy, which means to make it acceptable to be close to God. The root of, of the word means belonging to God or God-like. It, it is resembling God. For these objects to be inside the temple where God's presence is, they needed to reflect God's purity. Now, I'm sure every one of you, you've got some plastic Tupperware that has had a few too many servings of garlicky mashed potatoes or something else in it that's very strong smell, right? And, every, and it, it sinks into the plastic. And everything else that you put in that plastic gets the aftertaste of that garlic, right? And in order for that dish to be good for storing food and not make your taste or your cake taste a little bit like garlic, it needs to be consecrated. It needs to be made holy, which is more than just running it through the dishwasher five times. It needs to be purged deeper than what that washing can do. That is what is going on here. These things that are normal have this aftertaste of sin baked into them, and that must be removed so that it won't spoil the purity of the tabernacle. And remember that on the priest's head was a turban that was capped with these words in gold, holy to the Lord. That, that was like this tamper seal saying, you know, like earlier on in the early days of COVID, when, when something was disinfected, right? Or when you ordered your food, it got a little piece of tape over it that said, you know, it's been cleaned, it's, it's purified, don't touch it, it's, it's safe. That consecration is like putting a tamper seal, this is holy to the Lord, don't put your garlic mashed potatoes in it. The furnishings of the temple would also have that same mark, holy to the Lord. These things have been disinfected so they don't bring that smell of sin into this beautiful place. And that's why there's these little details in here, like how that curtain will cover the ark and it covers between the holy space and where the ark is and where the people are to keep any of that contamination from coming in or out. It's a clean room. And I've mentioned several times how much Exodus is written as a story of a second creation. We saw creation language when they were building the tabernacle. It was echoing how God built the world. And then we see this creation language even here in our passage at the end of verse 33. It says, and so Moses finished the work, which many have noted is a close parallel to Genesis 2-2. By the seventh day, God finished the work. Eden, which was lost in the fall, but now they have finished the work to make a new holy place, an Eden on earth, but you can't just throw your Tupperware in there. They had to consecrate special people, special things that would be remove that stench of sin so that they could dwell in there. But God has something better in store than just a few select people going into that new creation. His goal is for the world to be able to dwell in that new creation. And that's a consecration that occurs not from the outside like we see in our passage, but from the inside out. Ezekiel 36, God says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you 
so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. So we can kind of bring this together. Remember what happens after Christ or when Christ is, uh, dies on the cross and that temple curtain was ripped in two from the top to bottom. Those curtains that shielded the holy space from the rest of the space. It was ripped open and we rightly think that that was symbolic of that barrier between God and us was being removed by Christ. But there's something else that went on there. In view of what we said of this idea of a new creation, what is that? The holy space that was once in that tabernacle and had to be kind of kept separate is breaking out into the rest of creation to make more things holy. And the first place it lands is on God's people, Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost, notice some of the similarities to the end of our passage. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each one of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. What happened there at the day of Pentecost is a fulfillment of what happened back here when that tabernacle was dedicated and the presence of God went into the tabernacle. But what is different in Acts 2 is what? All the people don't run out coughing. They are there and could go into where even Moses couldn't be in. They became the holy space. The holy space of God has been moved to his people. And that means that you are priests. You are greater priests than what Aaron experienced. It means that all those things that we see in our passage, these outward signs of being washed and then clothed and then anointed, that those things point to what happens to you when you have faith in Christ. You are washed from the inside by the blood of Christ. You are clothed with the righteousness of Christ over you. You are anointed with his Holy Spirit so that you are consecrated to be a priest in service in God's tabernacle. That's what it means to be a Christian. That you are the fragrance of Christ in a world that smells of death. You are God's home in the world bringing his joy into the desert until one day that holy space has filled the world. In Zechariah 14.20, it describes this future time when, quote, even the harness bells of the horses will be inscribed with these words, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the temple of the Lord will be as sacred as the basins used beside the altar. In fact, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord. You see what's happening? That holy space will break out until even the Tupperware is holy to the Lord. It's speaking of a time when all of creation is filled with God's presence. All things are consecrated, all things are holy, and there is no aftertaste of sin. And that's our home. That's where God is leading us as we're going through the desert, and we're not there yet. And we need to remember that. Have a traveler's mentality. You're walking through the desert, and deserts are hot and miserable sometimes. And you get sweaty and stinky, and things bite you. And sometimes you might find a guy selling some nice cold Cokes behind, with a shade tree and think, I'm just going to stop here and rest for a while. But you're not home. God has something better for you. 
He is taking you to a home where there's no more crying or death or pain. Don't get so wrapped up in fixing your home here on earth that you forget that better home that awaits God's people. And yet, we're walking through the desert. That means it can hurt sometimes. This life will be full of suffering. Perhaps even now you feel alive to pain like never before. Maybe you're far beyond that and just numb to life and you want it to end. And don't be surprised by that, by how dark it can get in the desert, how cold the nights can be. Evil still runs around in this world seeking to do as much damage as it can and sometimes you are reminded of it daily. But what has Christ done? He has turned that greatest obstacle, the suffering and shame of the cross, into the way of your life. That you will make it home, and what used to be the end, death, has been turned into a gateway for glory. And your heart isn't home either. Because there's still layers of sin in your heart that you don't even know exist right now. But God is at work in you. And his presence is not just guiding you from place to place. His presence is in you, rearranging the furniture of your heart. Remember, as we looked here, every, it keeps repeating, just as the Lord commanded, just as the Lord commanded. God had exact details for how everything was going to be set up in his home. And if your heart is the home, he has very specific details for what your heart looks like. And that means he's going to rearrange the furniture, maybe, you know, move some walls, and it can be uncomfortable. But it's because he is transforming you. you know, if you've been away from home for a long time, maybe even overseas and get back into the United States into your home, and you get that first home-cooked meal, maybe you have a Coke, a real Coke, and you eat it, and you smell it, you taste it, and it feels so good, and you relax because you realize, now I'm home. Now I can rest. We've made it. Even if it was a great trip, we made it home. And that is what God promises his people. That you will make it home. And you'll know it because you'll taste it. You'll feel it. You'll sense it. Isaiah 25. The Lord will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all the insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. And when you taste that, then we will finally and forever be home. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us a longing for that home. Show us how good it is. And show us that it is so good that even those sufferings and pains that are so real right now cannot compare to the goodness of that meal that we'll taste when we're home. Show us that all the things that we're so wrapped up in right now, show us what they look like in light of eternity. And show us, Lord, that you are a good guide. Because we want the quick way. We want the way without suffering. We want the highway. But, Lord, you work in the valleys. You work on those rough roads. And you're working in us. And you have placed us exactly where we need to be, even if we don't want to be here. 
but you're a good God, and you're leading us home. So help us to know that, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.